Welcome everybody to Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we've invited a gentleman named Michael Horn. Uh, if you don't know Michael Horn, Michael Horn is a speaker and a writer that focuses on the future of education. He's written several books. Uh, one of them is about choosing college, the future of higher education. He's written about a book called Disrupting Class, which is how disruptive innovation will change the way the world learns. And he's written an Amazon bestseller, Blended, which is about using disruptive innovation to improve schools. Um, one cool thing that he's a part of is the co-founder, distinguished fellow at a place called the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. If you've never heard of it, go visit it. There's really cool uh, just ideas and thoughts out there around a lot of different uh, sectors. But if you're here listening to us, you're probably very interested in education and they've got some really interesting thoughts there. Our conversation today um, was, was uplifting to me, but also um, made me think. Uh, we, we dive into what the role of technology is in education. We dive into how do you reform K-12 education? Uh, what role does higher education play in that? Uh, we dive into uh, how do we create a system of lifelong learning and curiosity versus just uh, creating a system of students who game the system. And you know, even Michael and I talk about how we felt uh, prey to that during our own learning. Um, and then selfishly, I kind of dive in a little bit to uh, how do we teach our own kids to be lifelong learners? So the conversation is really interesting. Um, again, Michael Horn has spoken all across the world on the future of education for several years now. And so he's someone who just has well thought out ideas and it's something that will spark debate and interest in your own world. So thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a great conversation and enjoy. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today, man. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, and as I'm sure you know, our first question is always, who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yeah, well, I, first, I'm delighted to be with you all. Um, and, and thanks so much for having me, Dustin. Uh, and it's a good question, right? Defining yourself as a, is itself a, a learning project over time. Um, but fundamentally, I, I'm a writer, speaker, uh, change agent in the future, you know, trying to make education better so that all individuals uh, can build their passions and fulfill their potential. And I wake up every morning super excited about how do we create more opportunities for students worldwide, whether they're in preschool, K-12, higher ed, you know, workforce, how do we unlock these journeys? And I do a lot of it through my writing and sort of thought leadership, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and then obviously, I spend a lot of time with on boards and with companies uh, in, in the weeds, um, trying, trying to help them unlock opportunity as well and with educators uh, and policymakers. So, so I've kind of carved out this path where I get to do a lot of different parts of the system, which I like, uh, but, uh, but I'm constantly learning and, and trying to push the system uh, to change. That's awesome. How, you know, I think a lot of us, especially me, I mean, I'm, I'm full of opinions on the education system, uh, but I've not had anyone ever call me a thought leader in this space. And I'm sure, you know, uh, given your humility, I'm sure that's not something that you like stumbled into. How, how did you get to be, you know, a person who is thought of as a thought leader on the future of education in our country? Yeah, look, I, yeah, well, God, it's kind of you to say, but, um, you're right. I mean, it certainly wasn't a preordained path by any stretch of the imagination. I, I was extremely lucky. I, I went to Harvard Business School to get away from the public policy and writing world where my background was. And, uh, you know, someone you know, Clay Christensen, uh, had, had the opportunity to take his class second year and literally 
day in November, toward the end of class, he said, if anyone is interested in writing a book with me about public K-12 education, stop by. And, and the class had just changed how I saw everything in the world. And I was like, write a book with him? Did he mean that? And and right, exactly. Raise your hand. I, and so I stopped by and and uh, he, you know, a lot of, lot of details there, but eventually I ended up writing a book with him. And, and I always say this, like the theories of disruptive innovation on which the ideas were based are so strong that they, they can pour it across so many different circumstances and allow you to see things and organize things in ways that others haven't been able to see before. Um, and really get to some of the root causes of the challenges that, that people are struggling with. And, and I always feel like, you know, I, I just sit on Clay's shoulders and the shoulders of really sound theory. And, uh, you know, that coupled with trying to invest deeply in understanding learning and education uh, have allowed me to, to have a vantage point to say some things that, that I think have been useful uh, to a number of educators out there on the ground, right, with students uh, affecting change. I can I can definitely uh, concur with that. Um, I guess I, my my curiosity. First off, I, I just was joking to those of you who are listening. Can't see me raise my hand, but as soon as a professor like Clayton Christensen says, "Do you want to write a book with me?" I, I don't even know if I'm a uh, have a subject matter expert on that, but I'm raising my hand yes, and we'll figure yeah. that out later. Um, what was I mean? Again, I've, I've read the book, um, but for the folks who haven't uh, seen it, what was the um, the the foundation of disruption yeah. so people can understand what you guys were going after. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people talk about systems change, right? And, and, and they want to change the system. They want to do X or Y. And, you know, what I think Clay's realization was that systems are designed not to change. All the resources, processes, priorities that are built into them are designed, you know, a good one is designed to perpetuate itself. And you can have incremental improvements as long as it allows an organization or a system to improve the ways that it's currently structured. But when you need fundamental change that is discontinuous, that, that fundamentally changes the value proposition, changes what the goal of the enterprise is, um, which I would describe as real system transformation, almost always those changes come from outside of the parent uh, or the existing organization and model. And disruption in, in, in Clay's language, it was actually really just a theory of competition, right? If, if you're a startup entrant, don't try to attack the incumbent head on, go to the soft spots, the places they don't care about competing, the places where they don't compete today, where there's non-consumption, you know, there's no alternative for someone to get a certain service and be able to make progress in their lives. Um, and avoid the competition as long as you can and bit by bit get better and better and grow your own base. And then you can change as people start to flock out to something that's more affordable, convenient, accessible, and simple uh, over time. And as you port that into education, I, I think what we said is, you know, you may need totally new organizations, new models that sit within very different systems of, of learning and, and, and curriculum providers and teachers and so forth that allow you to do something very different. And yeah, at the beginning, you know, our, our, our theory was that technology allows you to, to personalize learning in ways that you haven't historically been able to outside of a tutor experience, which is prohibitively expensive for most people to afford. And, and really the way I think about it is we're trying to disrupt tutoring so that everyone can have a tutor-like experience ultimately, because we know that when you're in a small group or one-on-one -on -one relationship, 
you're more active as a learner. You move on when you master things. Uh, we, we tweak things to make sure that it accords with your motivation. We try to excite and turn on those light bulb moments for a learner. How do you do that across the millions and millions and millions and billions, really, if you want to look worldwide, learners, right, everywhere, uh, to be able to give them that personal attention. And technology combined with thoughtful uses of the adults and peers around uh, the environment can allow you to do these breakthroughs. And that's really what disrupting class is about, is how do we personalize learning for every single student and leverage some of the ideas from disruption and innovation theory more broadly to introduce these things in ways that will actually affect that change over time. So how do you think the public education system in the United States right now um, is doing uh, when it comes to personalized learning and where do you yeah. think are our biggest areas of focus to get there? Well, we got a lot of work to do, I'd say. Um, I, I don't think we're doing terribly great. I mean, EdTech, you know, the irony I think of the book is uh, Disrupting Class is that EdTech has been implemented largely in the way that we predicted it would, right? I, I, you know, I, there's 100 million learners are in Khan Academy now, 50 million are in Age of Learning. McGraw-Hill is largely a digital education company now, right? The print is not what it was. Um, and so there's a lot of technology and then obviously there's a pandemic. And so everyone's an online learner for some period of time in some ways. Um, but I don't think we fundamentally, and, and you know, I think what we got right and wrong in the book <laughs> was we said the unit of disruption is gonna have to be at the level of the classroom because we have full consumption of schooling in the United States. But fundamentally, I think what we didn't, we, we said it in the book, but like people haven't either absorbed it enough or we didn't lean into what it would take from a policy perspective enough to really personalize. You have to change a bunch of the other systems and assumptions uh, around uh, around the classroom. And, and you know, what does higher ed expect? Like what is, you know, it, what does it mean to be successful as a high school graduate? Well, getting into a good higher ed institution. Well, if that has flawed metrics and, and, and standards of performance, then it's gonna make it awfully hard to personalize and give people those different pathways and allow them to compete to be the most unique version of themselves as opposed to be the best on one standard metric, right? Um, and so I, I think we still have a ways to go. There, there's, I, I think Montessori education and there, uh, Acton Academy, and there's like lots of lighthouse, you know, blended learning schools around there that are doing a lot of cool personalization. But as a system, we haven't created the conditions I think for it to scale in the ways that we need to. Yeah, I think so. Uh, as I think about you know my main job is I travel around from state to state and talk to different superintendents, and I I think you know what would a superintendent say in this conversation? How would they answer some of your questions? And I think there's so many superintendents that would love to tell you we're a one to one district. We've got yeah. all the we're we have blended personalized learning. I have fought hard to get us the funding to get every kid a tablet or uh, a MacBook or something. Uh, what am I missing? Why is that not good enough? Yeah, and and from my perspective, and we said this in the book, right? Like if you just layer technology on the existing system, we call it cramming computers. You're basically layering technology to do better what the system currently does, which is it's a time based system. We batch students up by their age or, you know, it's a factory model. So date of manufacture, um, and we add value to them. The, we, we have mandates and you have to get through certain amounts of content in a particular year, uh, because you're in the fourth grade. This is what the curriculum expects you to do. And 
too bad if you didn't master it in this three-week block of a particular unit, it's time to move on to the next one. And by the way, there's going to be a standardized test at the end of the year in third grade, fifth grade, et cetera, that is only going to ask you grade level questions to see how much, you know, what percent did you get right and wrong on these pre-baked assessment questions. And as a result of that, uh, the technology, sure, it may be a more efficient way to learn certain pieces. It may marginally personalize, but I don't think fundamentally we're saying, hey, Michael's coming in in the fourth grade, but he's actually really doing math at a second grade level. He really hasn't mastered double digit addition yet, say, or whatever, whatever the thing is. And you know, if he's going to do uh, this multiplication set of problems and things of that nature, like he kind of has to know how to do that. Like these skills build on themselves, right? And so we need to personalize for that uh, is incredibly important. And, and so I, I think schools have made laudable steps forward, but fundamentally they haven't thrown off that, the yoke of the time-based system, if you will, and moved into a fundamentally mastery-based system where no, actually, Michael makes progress as he demonstrates mastery, not based on some arbitrary date in the calendar. And, and, and what I often tell superintendents when I'm talking to them is, I think the model of learning is way more important than the technology itself. Like Montessori education does a phenomenal job of personalization. It, it happens to be quite expensive. It's hard to get all the materials right and train teachers in a particular way. And so technology may be a more affordable way to do it. But fundamentally, they get a lot right about personalization. Um, and, and to me, like that environment and the model is way more important uh, than just like, oh, what technology do you have? Yeah. What is it uh, when you talk about Montessori, not that you're trying to champion one particular model? No. Yeah. Uh, what, what is it about? So we talk, say personalization, but what is it that, that they do when you think about the long term uh, scope of a student? that that really helps them or that's really attractive to you? Yeah, I, so I, I think it's a fewfold. Um, one, so, so as you think about, we can, we can deep dive into Montessori a little bit, I guess. So the, um, the uh, you know, as you think about it, like they have a prepared environment that is, has a structured set of choices for, a, for an individual student any given day when they come in. They're gonna have a two and a half hour block where they get to make some choices about what they're gonna do. The teacher is there observing and helping nudge them into productive choices, but not sort of saying like, hey, 30 kids, we're all going to do X today, right? There's blocks where you come together in a circle, but we're not going to mandate we're all doing the same thing. And so, you know, I, I see someone over there doing some advanced thing with, with, with numeracy and blocks and manipulatives and so forth. I'm not ready yet for it, but it gives me an idea. Hey, I'd like to set a goal to get there three weeks from now. And so the teacher says, hey, then great idea to start with this manipulative over here and really build your number sense so you can figure out X, right? And so I'm doing that thing at my own individual pace. That student who's doing that more advanced thing, by the way, they look over, they need a break and they're like, hey, I did that a few weeks ago. I'm gonna go teach Michael now, right? <laughs> and create this environment where the peers are actually supporting each other, not competing against each other. Um, and I, I, that's sort of the personalization that, but it's not just personalization. It's also combined with dispositions around habits of success and character skills of developing agency and executive function and being able to own your own learning and growth mindset and grit and all those things are integrated with the knowledge and skill acquisition so that it's a full package. I mean, I think what a lot of educators get wrong is like they're doing their social studies unit 
And then they're like, okay, now I'm going to do a little bit about growth mindset and why it's really important. And they're disintegrated as opposed to like, if you want people to believe growth mindset actually is a thing, <laughs> you've got to model it in the actual academic knowledge and skills itself where, hey, you're not a C student. Like we're not going to label you, you get to grow. And if you master this, like you've mastered that and look at all that growth you just did. Right. And so now I believe my ability to impact my performance is based on the effort that I put in and it's not a fixed thing. Um, but in the traditional system, like, you know, we all move on in this date, you're a C student, like you can lecture me all about growth mindset and the importance of Carol Dweck's work fundamentally, I don't buy it because it's just, it's decoupled, right? From the actual learning I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so a Montessori experience, one of the things that it's doing really well is integrating all these different aspects of what it means to be a, a prepared adult, ultimately, right? What we're building toward uh, in, in an individual and giving more and more agency and autonomy and so forth to a student as they progress, uh, both in terms of skill level and age. Yeah. So I, I was a former high school teacher. And as I listen to you, I kind of you know, always going to have that hat on. And I think yeah. one of the, the trends that I noticed, even in myself, but, you know, fellow students, as well as my students is um, they a lack, sometimes a lack of intellectual curiosity in the sense that uh, they knew their job was just to get an A or B and just master yeah. it. Play it. the game. Like they, and so I would like to think as a teacher, you know, I would, I want to create some sort of system for lifelong learning and individuality and all that. But at the same time, I've got standards I have to teach and get tested on, at, you know, as part of the, the whole system. How, what advice do you have for us as educators to try to like, how, how are we going to break out of this? Yeah. So I agree with, I, I agree with everything you just said. And, and I think it's hard because as an individual teacher, you don't have control over all those levers. You also, like, particularly as a high school teacher, right, you have students coming to you who have been conditioned and taught, in essence, to that, like, this is the way the system works. It's a game, passive learning, like, you know, just, just sort of check the boxes, right? And it's really difficult. I, I think there is, um, but there, there are glimmers that I think you can institute. And, and I'll just tell a story. Um, I was talking to a PE teacher recently in, in high school, and he had set up a, uh, so I'm a big CrossFit uh, 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 adherent for whether, for whatever judgments you're going to now make about me, but the, uh, um, and, and so was this guy. And so he had set up a system where every individual was going to come into PE and basically do a workout and have a set of personalized goals for themselves of what they would be able to do from, uh, you know, conditioning, athletic, et cetera, perspective of, over the course of a year. And they were all going to learn certain things around nutrition and health and stuff like that, but they were also going to have their own personalized sequence. And so at the beginning of each week, you were setting a goal, you were planning how you were going to get there, and then you did your workouts over the week, right? And then you reflected like, hey, I showed evidence. Did I hit that standard I wanted to or not? And then I get to go back into it. And so I think any teacher can implement fundamentally that learning cycle of goal setting, planning how you're going to get there, learn it, show evidence that you've learned it, that's the assessment piece, and then reflecting on what does that mean, and then setting a better goal or, or you know, attuning, you know, tuning more the next week. And then it's just a question of the teacher being transparent to the students and being like, okay, I want you to set goals. But just so you know, this is what I have to get through <laughs> and like be super transparent up front. Like th this is the rules of the game to be sure. Um, 
but you get to figure out how you get through it and, and what it means to get through it. And I'm not going to let you off the hook of saying like, yeah, you get to pass the standard if you haven't really internalized it and mastered it. And this is what I expected from mastery. And now we're going to work with each individual of you to, to figure out the best pathway to get you to that mastery. Um, and so I, I think it's, I, I think it's scary. <laughs> There's a big shift. You're not going to be delivering content uh, all the time. And there is going to be some jaggedness still because there's a time-based element of it, right? Like the year ends after 180 days. But fundamentally, I think you'll actually build much better results by giving students that agency and uh, uh, autonomy and authority um, in the environment and making the rules of the game super explicit, but holding them to a high standard. Yeah, I appreciate the practical knowledge because you know I signed up to talk to you. I know you give nothing but practical advice, but you also, <laughs> when you think about oh. the future of education, it's like it's heady stuff. We can get lost in the clouds, and so I appreciate you bringing that down. Now let's go back to the clouds. I mean, okay, I'm sounds curious, good. Curious, you know, from the time you raised your hand or went to Clayton's office to say, "Yeah, I'd love to write a book about disrupting education." What were some of your main? If you were trying to truly disrupt our education system in the United States, what were some of your main assumptions then? And what have you learned now from your experience? Oh boy, we could do a lot on what I've, uh, <laughs> what I've learned and been wrong on. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I was, I'm fundamentally an optimist by nature. And I think I had some set of assumptions that we would be able to make progress in ways in, in the public school system once people saw sort of the commonsensical things we were talking about in ways that clearly have not proved uh, correct. I think that's one big set of ahas. I, I'd say a second one, um, I was deeply skeptical of the role of projects um, in learning and project-based learning and so forth, because my experience as a student, and we all do this, right, um, was like, for, you know, group project meant four out of the five students did nothing and, and like, you know, me or someone else like got stuck with all the work. Right. Yep. Um, and I think what I've come to realize is like projects need to be part of the answer and authentic performances and so forth. Um, but that we need to do it with like very careful knowledge building and, and not decouple those things, right. To create sort of what I, I do still see in a lot of my school visits around the country, which is like, gee, look, they made a video. Okay, what's the video about? Like, what's the content, right? Kids these days can all create videos like, and edit them pretty well. But what was the objectives? What were, what were you trying to see on the other end? And that thoughtful work, I've come to believe, is incredibly important for motivation, for collaboration, for developing a full set of skills, um, but that how we do it matters a lot. And, and when I also now increasingly reflect on my school experience, I also know the biggest leaps forward I made were in really robust projects where that thoughtful integration, right, and feedback cycle was there. Um, and I also think like we need to be developing specifically, this is a big aha for me, um, we, we need to be specifically coaching people on like, how do you work with other people so there isn't a free rider problem and things like that. Just don't leave those things to chance because like most of us don't know how to do that well, including probably me still, because um, we don't we don't coach it or, or, or teach it. But there are ways to do so. And then uh, I'll, I'll just I, we could do more. But the, 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 I've learned a lot about the the cognitive science behind learning and 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 um, that I didn't have a basis of uh, up front in terms of what dimensions really matter for for 
where you differentiate and where you don't. Like, you know, learning styles is largely bogus. Multiple intelligences may have something behind it, but it's not a particularly useful way to, to sort of optimize some of that personalization. Um, but, uh, you know, understanding the, the role of background knowledge and uh, the, the, the role of working memory capacity and, and social emotional health and that and things of that nature, um, I think are things that I've, uh, th that I've learned a ton about over, over the last many years. Well, one of the things that I found interesting in an interview you did was, um, you know, I think anybody who wants to have great change, you know, you think, all right, so K-12, if I want to uh, revamp the K-12 education system, I'm just going to focus on the four walls of K-12. And I think you, you made a statement recently about that will be almost impossible. And I may be overextending, you know, no, saying, you're right. But like yeah. almost impossible if we don't focus on higher ed first. Can you expand upon that? Yeah, it's I'm glad you you, you called me out on that. Um <laughs> and this was a big this is a big realization because I think I had assumed exactly what you said. Like if you want to change K-12, you start at the earliest part of it. And that might be, you know, before kindergarten even, right? But right. and then you build your way up. But but fundamentally what I've learned over the journey, uh, and, and a friend, Gunnar Councilman, really was instrumental in teaching teaching this to me, um, was that the K-12 system is fundamentally a dependent system on the higher ed system. Um, and what that means is like, you know, what we think of as a good high school is that which gets its students into quote unquote good colleges. And if colleges are aiming at the wrong thing, they're not thinking about the future of work, they're not thinking about productive citizens correctly, right? Like colleges are largely not teaching and learning institutions. They're built around the, uh, uh, the uh, sort of the podium of, of research, if you will, above all else. Um, and they're really good at selecting based on prior achievement, not thinking about like how much value do they add to an individual learner, regardless of where they start. As a result, high school is inherently going to be flawed in what it's aiming for and what it's trying to build. And then you think about what's a good middle school. Well, it's people to develop people for that high school. Well, that's going to be flawed. Then elementary, right? And it just folds back on itself. And so fundamentally, I've come to the view that like, because our higher education system is sort of aiming, misaimed, if you will, um, it's going to be awfully hard to transform the K-12 system at scale unless we focus in on the higher ed and workforce and future of learning and lifelong learning, broadly speaking, set of systems um, uh, for us to be able to make the changes uh, that, that are required in K-12. Yeah. So I, I know, again, all my questions, just because you have written extensively about it in your books, you I mean, you spend, you know, an ordinate amount of time, you know, talking about it, thinking about it, you know, the Christian Institute, we can dive into with about disrupting education, uh, so I ask these questions. I don't mean to ask ones that are just so big in terms of the answers. I'm gonna let you focus them. Um, I just am so fascinated by your kind of main core thoughts on them. So when you think about uh, reforming higher education, what what are the two to three most important things that need to happen that can kind of set that chain of events off for pre-K-12? Yeah, it's a great question. I, so I think uh, a couple things in higher ed. One would be moving to competency-based or mastery-based learning. So that we've talked about in the context of K-12 a little bit, but the notion that, you know, we're not basing an entire system based on credit hours and like the number of hours you're theoretically working on a given class, but instead you're making progress as you master and demonstrate mastery of the knowledge skills uh, uh, and application thereof uh, of, of, of these things that you're trying to learn. Um, 
that that's a huge shift that I think needs to occur. There's a parallel shift that I think has to occur as a result of that, which is we need to start focusing on the outcomes and the growth of the individuals in the system, as opposed to the inputs. Like a good college right now is based on uh, the amount that its alumni give, the tuition, uh, the the entering SAT scores of its students, um, how many uh, you know tenured faculty does it have, and like how big is its library? Well, I, you know most of that has very little to do with the outcomes of the institution, and and I think we need to focus far more on the outcomes and not just like outcomes because they came in with you know uh, ha having been born on third base but outcomes based on like, what's the real growth of, of, of an individual? Do, do they move into places that are productive in society? And that doesn't just mean graduation rates, by the way, because I, I can solve the graduation rate problem of college pretty easily just by printing diplomas. Um, they, they, you know, like, do they go out into the world and, and have productive lives as citizens and as careers, as income, helping their families and so forth? Those are the questions that I think we ought to be measuring. And then the third part is, and, and this goes, I think, for K-12 ultimately as well, it's probably the case that like your teachers shouldn't be your evaluators and your institution shouldn't be the evaluator. Like they should be in your quarter, you know, coaching you. We, we happen to be recording this on, on the day where Simone Biles had to pull out of the Olympic uh, competition. But um can you imagine if her coaches were like the judges on, on, on the gymnastics floor? Like there'd be no trust. It'd be this adversarial process. It'd be crazy. Yet that's what we have in our education system. And, and there's no wonder we, we have all these pathways that don't lead to anywhere in the education system. And transfer is such a problem. And, and lifelong learning is really hard to get your head around because we don't give any incentives for other outside institutions to like accept knowledge, learning, whatever that occurs in other settings. And so how would you have a separate set of entities that are there to really help evaluate? Hey, yeah, Michael's actually mastered this set of skills. He's a great coder and you could accept him into this master program or, or, or this next you know, certificate or whatever it might be. Um, just to really create a more lifelong learning system that isn't just atomized pieces of like a certificate here that doesn't connect anything, but but that that all uh, leads and builds into each other, and and so, and and ideally would cascade back into the K twelve system, right? As as well, of hey, like you did a project on. I don't know, medieval history in eighth grade, like let's have real outside experts evaluate that work and say like, yeah, for, you know, these expectations, these outcomes, Michael's shown mastery of it, that, you know, that, that would be a powerful thing. I think that would have ripple effects backwards. Yeah. I, I, um, as you're talking, I'm sort of laugh at myself is I was really involved with student government and other hmm. leadership things at my college. And so when I became an alumni, you know, we were trying to climb up the rank, the rankings, right? And so of the, you know, the institutions of US yeah. World Report. And so you were starting off like the alumni giving percentage and all like all those little things that go into the rankings that like we knew them. And because I just wanted us to win so badly and climb, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the whys of it. I just thought it was weird, but okay, it's the game. I'm not gonna debate the game. I'm just gonna go win the game. Uh, yep. But that's the problem. Like who, who gets to decide that and why did those arbitrary things make for a good college? And then my question is, how, how are we ever gonna break it? Like what's holding us back from like making those changes? 
Holy cow. Yeah, I think it's hard. Um, and, and that's obviously why it's not been done. But part of it, I think, is it's really hard to like we, we pick the things that are easy to measure, which are the inputs right in the system, number of hours spent, you know, degrees of your faculty, right? Number of books like those are things that are easy to measure. Um, and so a lot of the rankings are built around inputs as opposed to outcomes, even by the way, like accreditation standards from the federal government, nine out of 10 are focused on inputs. Only one out of 10 is focused on outcomes. So everything is built around this. So what does it take to get out of it? I think one, we a have to step back and say like colleges have different purposes and different ideals. And like, we're not going to compare them all against each other. And like a community college can be excellent and the best at what it does and it is not competing with Harvard, right? Like they are fundamentally different goals. And that is a great thing because plurality, uh, like a pluralistic system is a good thing. Um, so I think one is getting out of this like rat race. There's one metric to win um, is, is important. And then the second one, um, I, I, you know, I do think actually government could help here in terms of making it much more transparent, allowing you to connect earnings data and things and placement into jobs and things like like what are the outcomes that matter to parents and students so that they could better evaluate hey like people like me coming from you know where i came from if they go to the school do they land into a job that they actually want do they graduate do they do they get the income that i think is important for me what's their level of debt right like those sorts of things um, we don't do a good job in this country uh, of connecting labor stats to education stats partially by design. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, I would say, fear-mongering ar ar around connecting those things. And, you know, colleges will some of them say, well, we don't want to be judged, you know, sort of reduced to just a labor stat. It's like, yeah, but you guys cost a ton of money. It is an investment on the part of families. So like, maybe if you didn't cost so much, we'd have a different conversation, but you do. And so we've got to be thinking about responsible risk that these individuals are taking. And those sorts of outcomes, I think, would really help people to think through, okay, what do I want to achieve? And by the way, some of those things could be like voter rate, right? Do you, you know, do you vote a lot? Do you participate civically? It doesn't just have to be income, but I, I think some of those sources of data, if we could connect them, we might create more interesting products that align with the progress that individuals are actually trying to make. Yeah, I've heard more and more folks, uh, my wife and I got started in education through a program called Teach for America that... Uh, mm. Uh, it, so college was something that we you know, valued very much and, uh, you know, want, when we taught, we wanted kids to think about, but, you know, I, I keep hearing more and more folks talk about college alternatives. And so, uh, what, what are those out there right now? And honestly, like, as I think about, you know, education, higher education for five years from now, that may be too soon, but 10 and 20 years. What are those options going to look like as ROI gets more and more important as people to, to in their decision-making process? Yeah, I, I love the question. And I think it's helpful to start with some history on it also, right? Which is, you know, a century ago, the vast majority of Americans like did not even think about college as in their future. It was a small set of people who were going on to higher education. Um, the GI Bill, community colleges, a lot of these uh, uh, changes brought many more Americans into the higher education system. But even today, a majority of Americans do not have a college degree, right? A, a minority do. Um, and I think it's something like 39% or something like that have a college degree. But 
at the same time as that was all taking place. So great widening of access, not a majority still, but in the job market, starting in the 1970s and accelerating in the 80s, and even more so with technology change and so and globalization and so forth, um, we started to tell a narrative that there were really only two pathways into the middle class. One was the military, but that was a small minority of individuals that became smaller. Uh, and the other was college for all. And uh, that didn't used to be the case. It used to be that there was apprenticeships, that there were, uh, you could go direct from high school, right? It had value. You could get a, a, a vocational program to get you into the trades. Um, there, there were a lot, you know, there were a lot more pathways. As the economy changed, a lot of those pathways became less viable. We're now at an inflection point, I think, where that's changed, right? We're seeing a lot more viable pathways, a lot different jobs and so forth out there. Uh, that don't require a four-year degree for every single student to be able to make uh, a, a middle-class uh, income, particularly if employers, and they have a big part to play in this, stop requiring uh, degrees uh, to get any every single job. Like That's sort of a reductive thing. I, I'd rather them look at the skills and knowledge you need to succeed rather than do you have a specific credential. And against that backdrop, though, we're starting to see a lot of people question these things. And so college alternatives are starting to emerge. I think we're still in the very early innings of this, but we're starting to see, uh, you know, coding boot camp programs, right? That will say, we'll do one to two years of your education and get you in and, and be a last mile training provider that will hire you on the way out in a temp agency and then place you in a particular company. We're seeing that model expand beyond coding into lots of other fields. I think we'll see it in healthcare over the next many years. Hopefully there'll be uh, a loosening of regulation to allow many more pathways into the workforce uh, uh, through that based on what you can actually do, not the number of years you were in a nursing program. Like, are you a good nurse? I would care way more about than you know, Michael sat in a four-year nursing program. Um, and then uh, the other piece of this is we're starting to see a lot more gap year type uh, structured programs start to emerge, which I've come to believe are incredibly important because so many individuals, like they wouldn't, you leave high school, you have no idea what you want to do to jump into a coding boot camp. For most of us, it's just not going to be the right next step. But if we can intentionally curate a year of exploration of discovery, uh, where you start to learn different career pathways, different walks of life, different in, interact with people in different places, uh, you know, not just backpacking around Europe aimlessly, but really understanding purpose. Um, I, I, I think we can uh, then allow people to take a next step into an apprenticeship, a boot camp, or whatever program it might be that gets them that first job. And then they might go stack that into a degree over time. Like this is not to say that college won't be the right step at some point. It just might not be a linear process, uh, I think is, is the notion that we need to get beyond uh, and creating more flexible connected pathways. Yeah. One of the things, you know, as a, um, I know you're familiar with our organization, but uh, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things that drew me here to do this work a decade ago was trying to help kids of all ages, pre-K and on, have a system to figure out their why, their purpose in life that could help shape their learning, their goals, their service, all those things. And I, I, I know you've talked about a couple of times and you just brought it up there is that uh, essentially having a structured gap year of some sort to help people really dive into that. Again, not just like go aimlessly waste time, but 
figure out a way, like, what is it I'm driven by? Cause I can only imagine how I would have looked at college differently. And I feel like I was pretty mature coming into it, but I, as I've admitted to you, I, you know, I'm a competitive person that, uh, just wants to win the system that I'm in. Yeah. And so I spent more time thinking about how to win the system and less time thinking, how do I just really learn and grow and constantly become, you know, a lifelong learner, which I know is a passion of yours. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Also, I, I mean, I'm reflecting on me right now against that same backdrop. I was totally someone in high school who played the game and won the game really liked my extracurriculars, by the way, like, and invested myself there. And like my big awakening was junior year, end of junior year when I was like, Hey, I really like geeking out on these three things and like, just go deep in them and just play the game in terms of the academics and get into the school. And I remember arriving at college and being like, now I get to learn. Like now it's all about the learning. And by the way, like no one told me that graduate school is also a game. And so I didn't play the game particularly well as a result, but I learned a heck of a lot. Uh, and so uh, I mean, it all worked out, but it's like, it, it, it's, it's so unfortunate that you, you would have that mindset. And it's, it's one of the reasons I respect, you know, the work you all do so much because the, the big takeaway from my last book, Choosing College, was we do not spend nearly enough time helping people build their why, their purpose, their passions uh, in a very intentional way. And I think the gap year uh, is, is a very important step that should become mainstream in that. But I also think, and you know this better than I do, starting as early as elementary, middle school, all the way through high school, like an intentional part of your curriculum development should be helping people ask that question over and over again. And obviously when you're in elementary school, it's like sort of simplistic and whatever else, but just exposing them to different careers that exist, different opportunities, different pathways that people have taken and letting them connect and ask questions and like just having their mind open. And then starting to ask, you know, help them ask better and better questions as they get older and realize, you know, you might not just have one passion or purpose, like it could change, but being super intentional as you grow, um, you know, I just as a, as an aside, like one of the things I deeply respect about Covey's work and, 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 and Clay Christensen's work um, is that they were both super interested in theories that would be circumstance contingent. Like that if you're in this circumstance, this is a step that makes sense. And if you're in this one, you might adjust, adjust it that way. And as a result, as Covey described it, right? Like you develop principles, not sort of fads. Um, and I, I think of Clay's work as in, in much the same way, which is like in this condition, you know, this, this makes sense, but in this circumstance, that, that's a terrible idea. You know, think about it this way. And how do we build these theories or principles that can help you live your life as you migrate across a range of circumstances and conditions, um, I, I think is incredibly, uh, in, incredibly important. And it's something that we need to be cultivating far more intentionally in learners far earlier. Um, because to your point, like right now we just play the game, but we don't tell the why behind it. And as a result, it's all about the game and not the why. And that's, or, or the why is the game. And, and that's, it's it's really unfortunate, I think, for a lot of learners and a lot of learners who very quickly realize, like, I'm not going to win the game. And so they sort of opt out of it, if that makes sense. And, and, yep. and our society has made it tougher in some respects for those individuals to get back onto a, uh, a, a track that will allow them to have the life that they want to lead. Yeah, you may have just stumbled into the answer of a question I have, but 
I, again, as I reflect, I'm also a parent of three young kids. Um, and I'm thinking, how, how do I teach them to become lifelong learners, right? Like I know I model it now because anything that I'm curious about, whether it's sports or uh, like philosophy or politics, like they see me, I'll, I'll go find who are the thought leaders and I'll be consuming a book next to them or articles and I'll talk to them about it. And so they see what that looks like, but I, you know, I'm not deliberately teaching them. That's what you need to do. What are those things like as a teacher or as a parent that we can be doing now to really start fostering that love of just learning. Um, Cause I think yeah. that's gonna be more transformative than any grades you'll ever get. Totally agree with you. I, I, I've had a lot, I mean, I have two young kids um, and I feel like I'm constantly, they're, they're, they're constantly life's best teacher. Right. Um, but um, I, I see so many parents and I do this myself occasionally. I'm not trying to say I'm better than anyone. Um, they ask a leading question that has a clear answer to it, right? Where you already know, like, do we hit <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. I, asking like truly open-ended questions where you're inviting someone to think about and ask a question themselves back, I think is a much more productive, like a really cool relationship with your kids, right? Where, where um, you're not like leading them and telling them like, you know, basically saying there's a clear answer here, right? And in front, yep. which creates this sort of pedantic connection, I think. Um, and then the second thing is really honoring and rewarding their questions about how the world works. And this is something I've been intentionally trying to fix in myself because uh, one of my, both my daughters ask wonderful questions. One of them asks really good questions. And, I, and I'm always like, well, that's a really good question great that I'm honoring the question, but like every question is a good question. Like I need, I, right. Like I just labeled it and that tells them that, well, then, well, gee, are certain questions, bad questions. And so, um, I think it's more like honoring that curiosity and like, Hey, I don't, you know, like being honest. I, so something I am good at saying is like, I don't know, let's go find out. Um, and whether that's technology or like, let's go to the library and get a book that's been a little harder during COVID, but like, you know, we figured out ways and honoring sort of that curiosity and letting them just go deep and then teach you, uh, I think is a really cool way to, 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 to um, have a relationship where like you model that last thought really quickly, which is like, I think it's really cool to invest in new things and learn new things as an adult too and show your kids that you can fail and, and, and work at something and so forth. So, you know, whether it's like a skill in CrossFit or like a new, I swore I would never be my kid's piano teacher. And then the pandemic hit and I started teaching them piano. Um, but, uh, but as part of that, like I said, okay, for the recitals, like I'll learn a piece too. And, uh, and like, they saw me struggle and work at stuff and mess up in the recital in front of family over zoom. Right. Like, and I think that was useful. Like, how did he respond, right? Like, I, I think that model, I, I learned to ski with them this year. I, I didn't grow up in a place where we skied. And like, they got to see me do that and be worse than them at times and better than them at times, right? And like, have that experience. And I, I, I think learning new things and modeling it yourself, it's cool for your own development, but I think it's incredibly cool for your kids to see like, hey, it didn't stop just because he's, you know, 40 something. No, that's really helpful. Cause I think for me, it's how do I, I see my seven-year-old who's the oldest, uh, he's a perfectionist and he always wants to get it right versus just, I want him got to one of those. Yeah. Embrace failure. Like 
yeah. fail forward, learn, grow. And I, I know I had those same tendencies and I probably still do. And I'm thinking, God, how do we continue to evolve in a really good way so that he has those tendencies a little less and then his kids will have a little, you know, just to continue to pass it down. And I, 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 I wrestle, I'll just quickly say, I, we have one like that. I, I wrestle a ton with it. Um, and so that's how we've thought about it is like, I want you to recognize that failure is a part of learning. How do we lower the stakes as you do so, but also allow you to understand that you're not going to get it perfect each time. Practice makes progress, not perfection. And that's okay. Yep. Yeah. I, so uh, I know our time's coming to an end here, but I, um, I'm going to point people to your books, but what I am curious is who, when you, you were trying to stay on the forefront of education, thought leadership, what are you reading? Who are you reading? What, are, what, what can we be doing to learn how you're learning? Uh, good question. So I love reading stuff like Dan Willingham, Stephen Coslin, people like that who are on, like do a really good job. I think of distilling principles from cognitive science into digestible ways of, of, of absorbing this stuff. Um, I love looking at like what a Brewer Saxberg at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is thinking about. Um, love reading Todd Rose or people who are thinking about individuality, uh, Digital Promise Global and their Learner Variability Project. P like those are some of the sources that I'm constantly trying to learn from. Um, uh, Richard Meyer, Mayer at, uh, I think UC Santa Barbara, um, like and his work on digital learning constantly trying to invest uh, in my own understanding of those things and then assimilate it out into the system more broadly. Oh, um, another question, what habits do you have when you think about, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to focus on for our, our next season is, um, you know, one, what are people reading and how are you learning? Two, I, I just believe everybody who is successful in life has either some habits or disciplines that really give them energy um, and help them be great. What are those habits uh, that you think are really key to your success and your development? I think a lot about this because I listen to a lot of like Tim Ferriss and self-improvement yeah. <laughs> podcasts. So um, I, I, yeah, love Ferris. I love Ben Bergeron, Chasing Excellence. Um, uh, I, so I, I I, I, I really do like discipline and, and like habits. Um, so, you know, I wake up and I do my set of stretches. I've modified a few things because of kids and stuff like that, but like, I'm not whole unless I get to start my day <laughs> with, with, with a certain set of things out of the gate, right. On that. Um, I, uh, I like, I, I, I want to hit my fitness, right. I want to hit these things. I want to make sure I read each day. Um, and uh, those are things that I've built over time. And, you know, we change it around COVID and whatever else, and it's not quite where I'd want it at the moment. But, um, and, and then I make sure like I have a sunset period and I'm get you know, trying to get eight hours of sleep a night, right? Like those sorts of things um, are, are things that I've tried to build a holistic, I guess I'd say lifestyle where I'm constantly learning. I'm trying to be healthy. And I, I, I think it then pours into my work and gives me more energy to do good work, uh, hopefully. So um, th th that's how I think about it. I, I love Ben Bergeron saying, uh, live, love, learn, and leave a legacy. Um, and that I, th that I think is a pretty good motto around like, you know, you're living your life, you're loving the people around you, family. Um, family is extremely important to me. You're learning every day. And then you're doing it with a way that you're trying to have impact uh, so that, you know, you weren't just sort of a uh, passenger on this earth. 
That's awesome. So last question before I let you have your day back. Uh, what, um, you know, as you're thinking about what's on your heart right now or the conversations you're having consistently, the people who come to this podcast are thinking about how do I become a better leader? How do I lead that legacy every day? What's the best piece of advice that you have right now for anybody who's just aspiring to make change in their life or become a better leader for the folks around them? Yeah, it's a good question. You're hitting me at a point where I've been thinking a lot about like, what's my value add in the world and where do I contribute the most? And how do I lean into and do more of that? And maybe other things that I deeply admire I like, but I'm, I think like other people do really well as well. <laughs> How do I let other people do those things and like figure out where I'm most uniquely able to add value and, and, and spend more time on that and not try to do all the other things that are out there and, 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 and run the rat race just because like, it'll sound good to someone else, if that makes sense. Like how, how do you get to um, dig into what's really driving you uh, and, and, and what lights you on fire each day? Well, as you figure that out, let me know, because that's something that I've been trying to wrestle <laughs> with as well. Um, uh, to one, one funny thing to leave you. So I actually, I, I work out at a gym every morning at five called Training for Warriors, which is similar to CrossFit, ah, cool. a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, but when you said CrossFit, like I love it, right? So I, I think it's great. But I sent to my group of guys that we all work out with a funny uh, video I saw this morning. It says, when CrossFitters brag to people who play real sports, and it's a... Uh, uh, Eastbound and down, I think, is Kenny Powers, uh, HBO. Yeah. Thing he talks about this guy's bragging to him about, um, you know, I'm a triathlete. I do this, I do that. And this thing says, when CrossFitters brag to people who play real sports, Kenny Powers' response is, yeah, I'm not trying to be the best at exercising. I play real sports. So <laughs> I love uh, it. I, I love it. I was out. I, 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 I love it. I, it's funny. Uh, so, my old, uh, one of my old CrossFit coaches who just stepped away to, take a job in finance actually. Um, but he's a big tennis player and I'm a big tennis player. And so we were yeah. out in the courts this morning for two hours hammering at it. And so I'm not going to do a CrossFit workout today. We were just like, Hey, the reason we're fit is so that we can be out here perfecting this and having fun with each other going at it. And, 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 uh, it, so I, to I totally hear it. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's, hey, it, you know, it's fun. What I will say is, so, uh, basketball is my sport forever. And then my knees and stuff gave out. So I transitioned to golf, which is not the same activity level as you can imagine yeah. as or anything else. Uh, and CrossFit there's like, there's a, there's a golfer on tour CrossFit's becoming really big for folks who are trying to get better at golf, which is pretty interesting. To me. Interesting. That is cool. I, I think I might've heard that podcast, uh, from Julie Fouché or something like that, of yeah. the, the golfer. Yeah. The, um, uh, it's interesting, right? Cause like, I, I, I've increasingly tried to think of like, okay, your sleep, your, your, how you eat your, your, your fitness level from CrossFit, like that's your base. So you can do really cool things, professionally sports, learn to ski. Right. And like, I was addicted this winter to skiing. Um, and you know, 10 years ago, if you had asked me like, will you ever ski? I would have been like, I will never ski in my entire life. I'm like, I can't wait till winter. Like I hated winter. I can't wait till it's snow again. So I get to go out on the slopes. Like it's just, and it's cool because it creates this base that allows you to do things that, that are accessible to you that wouldn't have otherwise been. So I don't know if the production team will cut our last PETA's conversation <laughs> out, but I will say one thing that's very clear. So you have incredible energy. Anybody who's ever listened to you, watched you, listen to you now, your focus, you have tremendous amount of energy. And it seems to me that working out is a real key piece to you totally agree. Being able to be the best version of yourself. 
Totally agree with that. I reinvented myself 10 years ago when my wife and I found CrossFit. Um, yep. And we, we joke it was like right after our wedding, not before, but, uh, but uh, it, you know, totally reinvented myself and I think gave me a new lease on life. Yeah, totally agree. That's awesome. Michael, I know you're busy, man. Uh, this has been an awesome conversation as I'm sure all of them are with you. Thank you for making time for us. And hopefully in the future, uh, we can have you back. Yeah, Dustin, I appreciate it and hope uh, we'll have more times to interact because this has been a heck of a, lot, heck of a lot of fun. So thank you. Yeah, man. Have a great day, okay? Appreciate you. Yeah, be well. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.